Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey there, welcome to the show. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. I hope you're doing okay. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Claudia Day. Her latest novel is available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. It is called daughter. I always wrote. That was always how I navigated everything. Like I remember making my first chapbook when I was like six and then I started writing plays. My first play went on when I was 12 and I was in the play and then I kept writing plays and then I wrote poetry and then more plays and then started really writing fiction. And that was like how I made sense of things, you know, and exited. Like, I think there's a huge amount of, like, escapism, of course, in writing. It's like the rooms in your head that no one else has access to. All right. That was Claudia Day. Her new novel is called Daughter, available from FSG. Daughter is a beautifully written book, a very powerful novel about the complex emotional and psychological dynamics of a complicated family. The book's protagonist is named Mona Dean. She is a playwright, an actress, and the daughter of Paul Dean, a famous author who is famous for one great novel, a novel entitled Daughter. Paul is quite a character. He is the patriarch of the family, a bright and vain and very seductive man whose personality and the force of his charisma seemed to overwhelm just about everyone with whom he comes into contact. In Daughter, Claudia Day explores the impact that Paul's behavior has on the women in his family. It is also a story about loss and love and creation, 
a wonderful novel and a great conversation with Claudia Day. That is coming up momentarily. A quick reminder before we get going that I do a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe over at Substack. The newsletter lives on Substack now. It is pretty straightforward. I share news of the latest episodes. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to hear from me in your inbox once a week, head on over to Substack and subscribe. Likewise, you can join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can get merchandise, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug. You can get a book club subscription. Help keep this show going into the future over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Books, publisher of the novel Penance by Eliza Clark, author of the cult hit entitled Boy Parts. Penance is a chilling, brilliantly told story of murder among a group of teenage girls. I just finished it. It is riveting. It is also the official October pick of the Other People Book Club. That is Penance, the new novel from Eliza Clark, available now from Harper Books. Okay, so my guest once again is Claudia Day. Her new novel is called Daughter, available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Claudia Day is also the author of a novel entitled Heartbreaker, which was a Northern Lit and Trillium Book Award finalist. It was named a Best Book of the Year by multiple publications and is being adapted for television. Claudia is a playwright. Her plays have been produced internationally and have been nominated for numerous awards. Her fiction, interviews, and essays have appeared in a variety of publications, including The Paris Review, McSweeney's, Hazlitt, and The Believer. I am very happy to have had the chance to meet and speak with Claudia Day and to talk with her about her excellent new novel. So let's get to it. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Claudia Day. And her new book, One More Time, is called Daughter. So it's Paul Dean, famous novelist, and his daughter Mona Dean, an aspiring playwright and an actress. She's always been on the uneasy outskirts of her father's life. He suddenly gets in touch with her. He needs to see her. It's urgent. They meet in the back of his favorite restaurant, and Paul confesses that he's having an affair. And Mona becomes his confidant, his accomplice. She thrills to this kind of sudden new central position in her father's life. And there was something so compulsive and addictive about looking at them together, at the the father-daughter dynamic, kind of being inside the mold of an illicit affair or a bad romance. And so that was really the genesis of the whole of the whole novel. You saw Paul and Mona in that restaurant. Yeah, I did. And then the first line of the novel came to me, and it's still the first line. And I'm such a voice-driven writer. I'm like a very sonic thinker. And once I had that kind of very direct, deliberate voice of Mona's, in in many ways, I had the book itself. And the first line is, and I'm going to quote you, the only time I get to be close to my father is when he is betraying his life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Paul Dean is a very seductive character. <laughs> Indeed. He was very seductive to write. 
Yeah, I, um, you know, I was raised in the 80s and the 90s, and so I was raised on, like, a very patriarchal canon, and Paul really came from, like, the heat and the junk and the matter of all my literary crushes in my youth, you know, Sam Shepard and Leonard Cohen, Henry Miller was a massive influence on me. Of course, I sought out women writers, but at that time it was like seeking out a subculture. So writing Paul, this novelist who's like an instant icon but hasn't published in 15 years, writing his torment, writing this man who's kind of, you know, does he have all the power? Does he have no power at all? This very, as you said, seductive man, very manipulative, very magnetic. I loved being inside his tormented insecure mind yeah yeah and it's like (laughs) he's like one of these people who just gets away with it like like no matter how many times he transgresses everybody in his life seems to forgive him and bring him back in like they cannot deny Mm -hmm. the power of his magnetism something about him there are people like this who just have this charisma and this I don't know, je ne sais quoi. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think you got it exactly. And that was something I was so interested in looking at, which is like, what is this addiction that we have to, to our fathers? Like, what is this like trance of handing over that we enter into? Like Mona can see what's happening with her father. Her father is like using her as a muse, but treating her so badly, taking her insights as his own, taking her lines as his own. She sees this kind of parasitic, very broken expression of love in her father, but she just goes toward it. She just goes toward the validation, you know, and it's more tangled than that. It gives her something too. It gives her her art. You know, she has a bit of the art monster in her as well. Right. So let's let's flesh this out a little bit more for people who are listening who have not yet had a chance to read, mm-hmm. just so that we get the whole kind of succession-esque fam- like larger family dynamic that you are portraying in this book. You have Paul Dean, mm-hmm. who is the patriarch, and as we have been discussing, this kind of magnetic, kind of uh, lecherous... He's ha- he has, you know, he has affairs. He's remarried to a woman named Cherry. I mean, you can describe it, like just the mm. larger family tapestry. Sure. I love succession-esque. Yes, we have this magnetic patriarch, Paul, at its center. And we have this spiteful stepmother, Cherry. We have the, like, backstabbing, dueling siblings all competing for a scrap of Paul's attention and Paul's love. So we have Mona, who's our central character. We have Mona's older sister, who she's very close with, Juliet, who's kind of like a a godly jock. And then we have Eva, who is Paul and Cherry's daughter. And Eva's the one who, at the beginning of the novel, estranges herself from Mona when she finds out that Mona, in fact, has been Paul's confidant throughout his affair. And so that's sort of the orbit of people uh, around Paul, around Mona. Yeah, and then you have Mona's uh, boyfriend, Wes. 
Yeah, we love Wes. We love Wes because Wes somehow lives outside of all of this like emotional warfare, this emotional chess of the novel. He just, he's somehow, he's an actor, but he like can't fake a line or can't fake a thought. And, <laughs> and they have a lot of privacy in the relationship. Like I thought a lot about this. Um, it's Anna Dostoevskaya talked about her long, happy marriage with Dostoevsky. And she said it was that way because they never interfered with each other's souls. And I think that Wes is the only is the only character and daughter who actually does not interfere with Mona's soul. He gives her a lot of space, a lot of privacy, never tries to interfere with her being or her psyche, whereas everybody else does. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like at some point in the book, unless I'm just projecting my own thought onto it. I think Mona says mm -hmm. that he is, that Wes is sort of the opposite of her father, Paul. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Like it's kind of her great victory that she did go toward the opposite human. Yeah. So this book, uh, in the writing of it, I read that you consulted the tarot. <laughs> I did. Okay. And the, I, I think did. you also describe it as like what a Scorpio... <laughs> novel you're a scorpio novelist self-described <laughs> yeah yeah i really like like stillness and dark corners and you know like classic scorpio stuff just like sex and intrigue all of that right um that's very heavily in the book um i wanted to write something like very taut and very sheared that would hold like heat and life I always think of that as like pretty scorpionic, the fury, the kind of like velocity of the novel. And in terms of the tarot, that was at those like lonesome hinge moments when I was like not sure where to go. And this book, the process was pretty strange. I circled books for a couple of years, writing in this like searching way, like I always think you write badly until you write well. And so I, and I tend to think long and then write very fast. So the first draft of novel I actually wrote in two months and the first draft is intact in the book. Like it's kind of precision and aliveness, that kind of weird sacred thing that happens in a first draft that's pre-analysis. It's all there. And then I like built around and beneath it as I worked. Yeah. So two months. With the, help, with the help of the tarot. Um, yes, two months. My fingertips went numb. Okay. And you get to a point where you don't know where the thing is going to go next. And you start drawing tarot. I don't know anything about the tarot. So you start drawing cards. Mm -hmm. What I do is I call my friend Damien. Damien Rogers. She's a poet. And she's, I don't even know how to begin to describe her. She starts drawing cards. And she does it over the phone. And somehow these cards become instruction. They become direction. They become like psychic company writing so lonesome and so strange and you need that strange lonesomeness to be able to do what you need to do but every once in a while you need like a flare in the darkness and that's what Damien would do for me and so you would get like a message from these cards that would serve as a, a prompt essentially yeah like I would draw the death card which of course inspires like complete bodily panic and she would reposition it as like a new beginning for example, I mean, that's a really coarse reduction of what she'd do, but put it this way, it gave me like the most invaluable insight when I needed it. 
Maybe I should call Damien. <laughs> you should Damien, call Damien. Damien should open up a business. <laughs> she has a business, and I'm sending you her contact after this. Okay. I mean, I feel like most writers who are working on some long-form long project could use this sort of support because mm-hmm. you do hit these moments. These are they're like an impasse, and it can be terrible when you have several mm-hmm. days where you're just like lost and you feel like the thing is just a wreck. You know, a wreck, and mm-hmm. you can't see it. Like you can't see the thing that you're obsessed with. Yes. Very scary. It's the worst. It's the worst. But you had a two month like feverish drafting Mm -hmm. process where you could see it. And like you say, this first draft is mostly intact in the finished product. So I guess you couldn't see parts of it. Like Mm -hmm. the core of it was always there, but then you would have these like I don't know, more like aesthetic or not aesthetic, but cosmetic questions about it. Mm, like, do you I know mean, what I'm saying? Like the skeleton was there, but maybe I'm thinking of like skeleton yeah. versus like hair and like the cosmetic stuff. <laughs> yeah, skeleton, like the x-ray was there. The voice was there. The shape of it was there. But then of course, like that's like romantic and retrospective. And yeah, a lot happened in those two months and it was a first draft. But then you have a year of conversations with brilliant editors who ask you the most incredible questions and call you out on anything that's like remotely fraudulent. And then you get to the most precise expression of the book through mm-hmm. that work, really. You know, I came up in the theater and I had a theater teacher who was like, nothing's going to happen if your ass isn't in the chair. You know, so it's truly about time and work and devotion. And with this book, I wanted so much to go for reduction and momentum. I really wanted to do something that was different from what I'd done before. Like it started in the pandemic. So I was like, like everyone socially isolated outside of my socially constructed self. And I think that the fear that I felt at that time, the impatience that I felt the worry, the despair that came with the pandemic. I think that all of that like urgency, but also the odd psychology of like being outside of your social world entered the book. Yeah, I can kind of feel that. And I definitely mm-hmm. want to talk to you about the, the prose. Just the mm-hmm. thing I noticed about it that distinguishes it from other books that I've been reading is your elegant use of short, blunt sentences. I love that. I love it too. I was like, where has this been? I feel like we need more of this. I feel like it's gotten, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, there's something kind of like Hemingway-esque about it, not to like be too reductive, Mm. but you know what I'm saying? Just that declarative sentence that holds a ton. You are excellent at that. And I feel like too, this is a really deft portrayal of the writer's life. So that kind of feels tied to this idea of the pandemic and being removed from your social, you know, socially constructed identity and being really mm-hmm. more inward than usual. Mm-hmm. This is the first time you've ever written about a writer, correct? Yeah. I mean, I wrote a play, gosh, 15, 20 years ago about a poet in Canada called Gwendolyn McEwen. And she died. She died too young. She died at um, 46. She you know, had mental health issues. She was an alcoholic, uh, but mostly she was a genius who, who published very prolifically in like every single form. And so I had visited uh, that kind of demonic, erotic life of the writer in her, 
And that was a big project for me. And I think, I think the question needed to resurface, you know, like 20 years later, I needed to do it again, but I needed to do it inside a different framework, the framework of the father and the daughter, which like, I just could not look away from this relationship. Well, I feel like we have as artists, I mean, there's only so many different themes for Mm -hmm. each person to sort of riff on. We have our, our concerns, you know, wherever they might come from. I get that. I know my own. I mean, I know some of my own and you, Mm -hmm. I think that's normal. Mm -hmm. I mean, is it like, it is, I feel like, I mean, if you look at a person's, if you look at a person's body of work, Mm -hmm. you can usually suss out recurring thematic concerns. Yeah. No, I think that's very true. And so for you, it's like family, Mm -hmm. it's the artist, it's, I mean, in this book, one of the most interesting things about it is this collision between artists because both Mona and Paul have the same obsession. Mm -hmm. And there's something parasitic about this relationship. There's something competitive about the relationship. Mm -hmm. And then there's something very gendered about it, as we've been discussing. You know, Paul is very much cut from the cloth of like the old school great male writer who, interestingly, mm-hmm. I think one of this is one of the best choices you made. He really only ever wrote one book that was received well, right? Uh-huh. I mean, th- this That's novel it. daughter of his sort of made his right. name, and he's been dining out on it doing like cigar and whiskey ads and stuff. <laughs> I mean, that is something that feels maybe particular to men of a certain generation, that they could mm-hmm. live an entire life off the success of one effort. This is, this is a question that came up for me as I worked on the book, which was just how little male writers, you know, in the past have had to do to be canonized, to be worshipped, to be called masters, masters of masterworks and masterpieces, and then how much women have had to do to be seen, to be seen as equals at the writer's table, equally sublime. So yes, Paul did dine out on his novel, Daughter, which may or may not have been based on Mona and may or may not have been written mostly by his first wife, Natasha. And yes, there he is territorial. He is very possessive of his fame. He's very insecure about it. One of the kind of big themes of the book is, you know, this idea that making art is making personhood. And when your art is not entirely your own what is then your relationship to yourself, right? So Paul is, he's a very fraught, fraught man. Well, and okay. The other thing about him is that he's married to an incredibly wealthy woman. Cherry <laughs> yeah. is like, you know, the, mm-hmm. uh, what, what do you call it? The scion? Is that the word? Of, yeah. of, of a dynastically wealthy family. Mm-hmm. And she subsidizes like the the bulk of his you know, his life and his lifestyle. And she also disparages his work creatively and kind of lords over. He's written, what, two or three books Mm -hmm. since he's been with her, but he has not published anything because she deems these works unworthy, right? She sort of like Mm. has has some control over him in that way. Yes, she's very much a censor, a censor and an influence. And, you know, those kind of like coercive love relationships where they're like destructive inner monologue becomes your own, you know, he's, he's, he's a pawn 
in her in her schemes and she is upon in his marrying her was like a very tactical move right he's taken care of he's kept and so he's a captive but he's also very much nursed on his yeah. own private island right right <laughs> there's a line i before we get too far downstream i want to make sure to to read it for listeners i think it's ani mona's f- uh, friend from theater school who says, quote, when a white man is described as a genius, even once, he can get away with anything, including murder. <laughs> <laughs> and that really, I mean, it's not too far off from the truth, right? Especially mm-hmm. in, in a particular era. Maybe we're moving a little bit away from that set of circumstances. But mm-hmm. back in the day, like we're saying, you could write one book mm-hmm. and be hailed. And the same would not be the case for... Mm-hmm say, women or people in marginalized communities. It was... Indeed. So Indeed. Paul mm-hmm. is uh, living large and is. not publishing. And, <laughs> you know, you, you talk about wanting to capture like the really vital and most emotionally potent moments of Mm -hmm. this story Mm -hmm. of mona's story in particular since she's the central character Mm -hmm. and one of the things i noticed in the prep for this in reading some of the interviews that you've been doing is the repeated reference to a lecture by celine siama Mm -hmm. who directed Mm -hmm. uh, the film portrait of a lady on fire Mm -hmm. and it has to do with this issue of uh, what is it Necessary desired. Desired. Yes. You you describe it, but it's okay. like it's very interesting creatively, and I want to I want to make sure we talk about it. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. I'm so glad you raised that. So it's about um, it's about how she approached that particular film, and she looked at she had two lists: desired scenes and needed scenes, and she wanted this film to be only desired scenes, sort of like Didion's flash cuts. Okay. So what is a desired scene? So, for example, a needed scene would be something that's kind of like a biographical tendon, something that you think the the viewer or the reader might need in order to track and to follow. But perhaps they don't. Perhaps you can literally show a boat on the water and then the hem of a woman's dress on fire and then enter a portrait studio. And the viewer can actually fill in you know, on her own, right? Collaborate with the director, with the maker in a different way. And she, I love this quote, she said, knowing your desire is knowing your project. Essentially, you show only what you truly desire to show. And so if there was a needed scene that was needed, needed, it needed to transfer over onto that list of desired scenes. So I very much tried to use that. It's almost like asceticism when it came to daughter. Like I, I tried to use that very rigorous rule, those constraints with daughter, where I showed and wrote only, only what I wanted to, knowing that the reader, the reader is smart. The reader can follow. They don't need, you know, quote marks and they can handle long paragraphs and they can move with you, you know, in terms of present tense, past tense. POV shifts. Uh-huh. Yes, that's that was something, you know, I went in with direction with the book, but I was open to being disrupted. And very early into the writing, I suddenly found myself like transiting between points of view. So we're not only in Mona's mind, we're with Mona and Paul at the restaurant. We're in Mona 
And then we're actually behind Paul's eyes, you know, and then we're behind Sherry's and Annie's and Juliet's and Wes's and uh, Eva's. So you get, yeah, you get little bits of these other POVs. Mona is the central POV. But like you say, this is not a, the the writing is not adorned with quotation marks. It's very stripped down. I I like that. Mm, I feel like it slows down. Like you talk about velocity. I feel like you know, sometimes people are like, because in my last book, I didn't use quotation marks. And my mom mm. is like, why didn't you use quotation marks? <laughs> and I'm like, I feel like it slows down the read. I love that. And I love that your mom called you out on it. That's like <laughs> such a perfect mom thing to do. Come on, Brad. Uh, yeah. Well, it's, what's up with that? But I just <laughs> How am feel... I supposed to know what's spoken and what's thought? You're but like, you know. You, know. you do know. I feel like most readers, like, you know, books teach you how to read them when they're done well. And once yes. you once you get it, you've got it, and then it's just a joy to read. And mm-hmm. it's not easy to shift POV in the way that you do, mm-hmm. and to maybe write in this way where mm-hmm. it's only the desired scenes, you know. And you've mm-hmm. really made an effort to kind of be spare and exacting with the prose, mm-hmm. not in a way that's deadening. It's like I, I think something mm-hmm. you said about it in another interview had to do with something along the lines of wanting the prose to have a kind of vitality so that it carries the energy of the spoken. You talked about being a sonic writer. Mm -hmm. This is a version of something that I've said to myself repeatedly. Like, I'm after the same thing. I love as a reader when I'm reading a book like this where it does have that momentum and that vitality and that energy inside of it, and it feels like somebody's talking to me rather than somebody's, like, writing at me. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So it's like it's like um, Helen Helen Garner said this. It's like spoken language, but just a little bit more starch to it, just slightly more formalized. Right. And I think that that's, you know, again, I came up in theater, so it was like moving between the characters. You know, the book does have kind of a black box theater feeling to it, and that it's pressurized. And I want the readers to have like a common experience together in the dark, and that it's like a limited number of characters and a limited number of settings. And it's like when I'm shifting POVs, what my friend calls the ghostly writing, it's like each character then kind of gets to come out and have their private moment with the audience, you know? And what I wanted so much with this book was closeness, like closeness to life, closeness to the reader, closeness to myself. And I knew the way to do that was through Mona. So it was not enough for me in a way to just be inside her. I needed to be like, how is she appearing to others? Like, how is she seen by these people in her orbit? You know, and is it Mona? Is it Mona projecting? the expectations that are placed on her, the judgments that are placed on her, her disappointments. Well, and it's also this this intimacy. You talk about closeness. Mm. I think there's an Annie Erno line about how a good book should feel like you're reading like an X-rated movie or something. Yes, 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 yes. Where, She's like, it's like um, you should, the reader should be in a state of stupefaction where their uh, judgment is suspended. Yeah, like watching a pornographic film. That's it. Well, I mean, and another way of putting it might be like good books should say the unsayable. They should mm-hmm. take you into realities and character truths that reflect, you know, human experience in a way that it is often often not articulated. Like that level of intimacy mm-hmm. where you really feel like, like I, I, as a reader, I felt like implicate, I felt like really involved. Oh. And 
Never more so than in the section of the book where the, the family is having this really dramatic argument via email, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is true to life as it is lived in our times, you know, where people can mm-hmm. communicate through text and email all the time. And sometimes when things are really heated, it does become like an email thread among family members. And it's just like, mm-hmm. you know, it's very well done. And formally inventive, and I never felt lost. And it's mm-hmm. also like really emotionally involving. It's mm-hmm. just really well done. So beautiful. Thank you. That is mm-hmm. what this book is doing. And I'm curious mm-hmm. to know when it comes to this issue of desired scenes versus needed scenes, if you applied that rubric to the book, in, it must have been in the edit. Like you do this two month first draft and then is that what the edit was about was trying to parse between desired scenes and necessary scenes and to make sure that your novel was kind of stripped clean of the necessary Mm. or that the necessary Mm. were kind of rolled into the desired? Mm. That was definitely like a guiding principle for the work. But the edit honestly was, was me just being in conversation with brilliant championing women with Jenna Johnson at FSG and with Kiara Kent at Doubleday. And they, one of the biggest challenges that I faced was that Paul was like such a magnetic character in the novel that he threatened to, as he does in life, overshadow Mona. And that the point of the novel was that Mona achieve a kind of revolution within herself that was not in response to her father, but of herself. You know, I wanted her to enter her power and have agency. And I wanted the novel to have the agency that Mona has, you know, so that the the edit was crucial, you know, drafting and drafting and drafting to stay true to that aliveness and precision of beginnings that, that like, I do just so believe in those first drafts, but then of course, deepening it and then, and then just like honing it. This is a love, very this is a very well honed novel. Thank you. And I just I loved your comment about feeling like implicated and involved. Like I keep thinking that a novel should be like a song, like it should be like a bodily experience, you know? And I just I love that comment. Thank you. Well, and another thing that you've said is this book is not autofiction, but I wanted it to imitate autofiction. Yeah. I find that an interesting assessment. Like mm-hmm. can you explain a little bit? I mean, I wanted that, like that kind of thrill of voyeurism into another person's life. You know, I, I feel that all the time in terms of, you know, the way that I interface with the culture, like I'm, 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 it thrills me. It's so interesting to me when a curtain is just parted and you're, you're able to look and like really internally, like it's such an internal book. It's so granular and I think that that's part of why I didn't want to waste time on describing things. I just wanted to be inside these characters and their mental loops and their kind of cycles of self-castigation and self-inquiry. Yeah. Yeah, there is not a lot of description in this no. book. This is not a book where you have like uh, descriptions of people's, I mean, sometimes there's outfits, sometimes, mm. I mean, very briefly, like the weather or something, but this is mostly a novel of interiors. Yeah, there are a couple of outfits, and <laughs> there are mentions of weather. Yes, but it's <laughs> and, not its not like super like ornate in that way. Like it's and not... Then, no, and a lot of French fries and red wine. That's and, the autofiction part. 
By the way, right one <laughs> point, I have a bone to pick. Like French fries and mayonnaise. I can't go with mayonnaise. Oh, I'm okay. anti-mayonnaise. I can't do it. <laughs> it's just, it, you know what? It is a divisive condiment. I yes. really understand that. No, no I, uh, my my sister cannot even see a jar of mayonnaise. No, so neither. I feel I'm, you. I'm yeah. not into it. But Mona <laughs> loves French fries and mayonnaise. We just she have does. to... Al- allow her that transgression. And, you know, I want to like, I guess I should flag this as like a a semi-spoiler alert. Mm. It's hard to talk about the book without getting into this issue. And for me as a reader, maybe you totally disagree, but the irony of a novel called Daughter, the irony of the fact that this novel is called Daughter is that to me, the ultimate effect of this book is that it is about motherhood. And you talk mm-hmm. about Mona finding agency. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen in the absence of her becoming a mother, at least to me mm-hmm. as a reader. That was mm-hmm. my take on it. It was like yeah. she did not achieve any kind of agency or liberation from this kind of toxic and problematic relationship with her father until she became a mother herself. Mm-hmm. And that's like the that's like the the psychological undercurrent or the the undercurrent of the novel that Mm. uh, it's like the the gravitational force that you're kind Mm. of being pulled toward as a reader and it's very psychologically astute this is a very psychologically astute Mm. book and it is never illustrated more so than in these incredibly short sentences that say Mm. so much You said earlier that you think long and then write quickly. I'm wondering how much honing went into achieving the power and concision of these short lines. Does a lot of it come out in the heat of that drafting? Mm-hmm. Uh, is a lot of maybe what I would characterize as like psychological astuteness mm-hmm. born of that long thinking process? And mm-hmm. what does that long thinking process look like? Is it just like taking walks? It's kind of probably hard to describe, mm. but that's two questions. Uh, oh my you know, gosh. What, does yeah. the th- what does the thinking process look like? And then how did you arrive at the power of these really short sentences? Wow. I love all of that. I feel like just saying yes to all of the above <laughs> because you're talking about the gravitational force of the novel being motherhood, which I think is like talk about psychological astuteness. That's it exactly. It's like she finally is liberated of her role as daughter once she becomes a mother. And looking at motherhood too as a source of like untapped artistic power for Mona. Okay, and then we talked about just it is in the heat of those moments, those like intense compressed writing periods that for me, the best writing happens, but certainly of course, there's this period of like a buildup where I'm, you know, I'm reading, I'm taking notes, I'm kind of contending with my own obsessions or losses or debates, whatever I need to kind of resequence and like understand inside myself. All of that is like, it's like the wilderness that I like walk through um, to get to that place where I'm finally like kind of hot enough to work, you know, and I do walk a lot. Okay. I walk like a ridiculous amount. I think a lot of writers do that or they <laughs> run, but running is a little aggressive in my, yeah, in my view. Same. But, uh, 
what does it look like when you're in this kind of feverish drafting process? What does a day at the office look like for you? Mm. Well, I tend to, you know, I live with my husband who's a musician and our two sons. And what I tend to do, especially in those early drafting periods, is I go away. And so I'll go and borrow a and, and friend's empty home for a couple of weeks or even longer, and I'll work. And I'll work like a monk. You know, my mom for daughter, my mom actually packed individual portions of frozen homemade soups for me so that I would never have to worry about cooking. And I'm like extremely precise in terms of like, how I spend my time. Like I do think that sort of pressurized state makes you very exacting about where you put your body and your attention. So I wake up, make coffee. I go right to my desk. I have like a bunch of like hard boiled eggs and, you know, cut fruit and all this stuff in the fridge. And then my mom's soups and I have all these ways of nourishing myself. And then I'll do like an online dance class in the afternoon just so that I can like get out of my head for a while. I always have a notebook with me and then I take whatever comes up in that strange dance class. And You're dancing while holding a notebook? Is this what you <laughs> no, do? There is a notebook nearby. Just, I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Which is one of your great talents is the ability to write in a notebook while dancing. So it is my only talent. <laughs> <laughs> but I get that. I get that. Like some sort of exercise to sort of like break the the spell of that mm -hmm. really like psychological, cerebral, Ugh. inward time. Exactly. And exhaust myself because at that point I'm in this like hyper vigilant state of like, I'm just so alert to sensation, to everything. So I need to like calm down and that helps me a lot. And I'll go off the internet too. I won't go online for a couple of weeks. Like I'll power down my phone and basically exit society. Wow. So it's like really austere. It's super austere. Exactly. But that I, I get it. Like that's what you have mm -hmm. to do to be able to get work done, especially if you're dealing in a compressed time frame. Mm -hmm. Are you counting words? Like do you have a set benchmark each day that you're trying to reach or do you just, you work for a certain number of hours and that's it or? It's like I work until I feel myself like beginning to interfere and then I'll take a break and then I'll come back to it later. And then at night I'll read. Or I'll watch like excellent television or films. Meaning like highbrow, like HBO dra yeah. dramas, that kind like of stuff. Euphoria. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I have, I've talked to people. It's interesting. It's either that or it's like I'm watching like some home makeover show or like The mm -hmm. Bachelor in Paradise or something. Yeah. <laughs> which is, you know, or yeah, exactly. Something that lobotomizes you. That's right. Yeah. Which has its merits, I guess, if you really need it. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's talk about love, mm. uh, which is also at the core of this novel. It's mm. familiar. It's, it's a novel about familial love and the complexities of that and the consequences of its absence. And mm. also, I think this is interesting considering Mona's theater background, which she shares with you, mm -hmm. is the way that we perform love or certain people perform love versus mm -hmm. actually loving people. Like that's really at the heart of this. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So much of the book is about that. Exactly. It's like what's performed, what's real, what's spoken, what's withheld, what's internal, what's external. You know, it's, it's, I, I guess 
one way that I've thought about it, and this is, you know, when I when I draft and then finally exit a book, it's like I have altitude and I can see it. And one way that I've looked at the book is that every character by the end of the book has like broken their own fourth wall. Like they're actually entirely contending with their furies and lusts and desires and vulnerabilities and, and all of that. But it's like you could look at every single scene and it could be about love and whether its expression is broken is it real? Is it to manipulate? Like, is it love for profit? You know, I keep thinking about that. Yeah. Right? Like, it seems like love. It looks like love. It kind of sounds like love. But I'm being, like, either pickpocketed or robbed here. I, I know that, you know? Like, that's Mona's, that's like Paul's great draw and Mona's kind of trap that she just willingly enters time and time again. Well... It makes sense too that her great liberation would be motherhood because that I think is, if not the, it's certainly one of the purest forms of love is the love of a parent mm -hmm. for her child or his child. Well, we'd hope so. Well, we'd hope right? so, right. That's it. It's like, you know, I love that you talk about motherhood as the gravitational force of the book. And I think that's absolutely correct. And I think in Mona's case, it's actually her chance to to, to express that love in her own way, you know, because obviously she has Paul's example, which has been so like erratic. And then she has Natasha's example, her mother, who's so steadfast, but in a way kind of unreachable too. Well, she's kind of like, Natasha's a very interesting and sympathetic character because she is kind of a secret genius. She's mm -hmm. like the woman behind Paul in the way of like Zelda Fitzgerald and Scott Fitzgerald, they come to mind. Like she had quite a lot to do with his writing in ways that were mm -hmm. never fully recognized, you know, in the, in her lifetime. And mm -hmm. this is often the case, whether it's that the, the wife is making significant aesthetic contributions or the wife is just simply like a, Nabokov, like, didn't his mm -hmm. wife, like, mm -hmm. you know, did everything basically to create the space that he needed to be able to work. And she's kind of unsung in that way. And I think she is described in the book by Mona, unless I'm misremembering it, as like Marilyn Monroe, if Marilyn Monroe drove a sedan and worked at a radio station. <laughs> That's Natasha. <laughs> yeah. That's her. She's great. She's great. And a good mom, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She's there. Like, she's physically there when Mona needs her. Uh, without any of Paul's narcissism. And writing out her character allowed me to explore those bigger ideas about, you know, women of a certain generation raised to believe that somehow motherhood and making art were like oppositional and mutually destructive. And she's, you know, fairly tragically false prey to that notion and instead becomes the engine for Paul, for Paul's art. Well, and it's also interesting to me to think of all these characters interacting with one another and performing versions of themselves mm. that have become like, like well-worn roles. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's a line, I think, from Paul where he's talking about this, where he says, when people know you well, you perform within the confines of their view of you. So again, this sort of harkens to like the theater and mm -hmm. this theatrical background. But I think there's a lot of human truth in that idea. 
you get mm-hmm. intimate with people and you find yourself in their presence and you sort of fall into a performance of yourself. That happens with family a lot. Like you're kind of like, I remember this from my 20s in particular. You're sort of like one version of yourself with your friends and then you kind of go home from college and suddenly you're back in your like childhood bedroom and you're sitting at the dinner table and you're like, who am I again? I just fell back into who I used to be. (laughs) You know, like, Like that sense. It's so true. It's so true. And I think that as writers, we know that like I know for me writing Mona, like she just has much more nerve than I have in terms of those faces and choosing not to wear them. I think that we end up writing, like we go into our studio every day, we like disassemble and then reassemble ourselves and fictional people to get a break from that life where we're having to perform you know, what's expected of us, especially as it's like those well-worn treads of family dynamics where you're supposed to be a certain thing, you know, and those molds are so impossible to break. And that, again, it's like, I write to like, re-describe that, you know, to break that. And Mona, you know, she certainly does. Being with family is a particular kind of crucible. (laughs) I mean, you can think that you, and and not necessarily in a bad way. I think that it just activates you in a different way. There's an, a level of intimacy mm. that exists no place else, right? I mean, I, maybe with like your super close, close friends, if you're somebody mm. who can like get to that level of intimacy with friends, but mm. it's activating. You can feel like you're on stable ground as a human being and then you go to like a family reunion and it's like Mm. suddenly Mm -hmm. you're just you know you're in this like state of emotional tumult i think that's a feeling that many of us have experienced yeah activating and yeah tumultuous tumult making yeah solidarity there absolutely I, i can't help like along these lines i can't help but uh like wonder about like uh, your upbringing. <laughs> I don't mean to pry, but it's a novel that you read and you're like, wow, interesting. Like Claudia's got a lot of these things on her mind. Like, mm-hmm. do you have like, comp- have you experienced complicated family stuff? Have you had, had to sift through these kinds of like parental and, uh, you know, parent-child relationships and psychodynamics? Of course. Of course I have. You know, I don't know anyone who hasn't truly. And I think for me, yeah, there's a huge amount of my own like questions, deliberations inside the book. Of course, I think we all need to write from a place of what obsesses us or what occupies our psyches, our souls. And so certainly the book came from that. You know, I was raised here in Toronto by my mom mostly. And she had a corporate life, but she was an artist. And now that she's like exited her corporate life, she's devoted herself full time to her art making. And she actually finds like archival photographs and stitches through them. She's like a master seamstress. And so she had this like totally kinetic, dark, kind of brilliant mind. And, you know, it was really mostly my mother and my older sister and I in the household. So it was like this very kind of like feminine, explosive, like habitat. And I always wrote. That was always how I navigated everything. Like I remember making my first chapbook when I was like six 
And then I started writing plays. My first play went on when I was 12 and I was in the play and then I kept writing plays and then I wrote poetry and then more plays and then started really writing fiction. And that was like how I made sense of things, you know, and exited. Like, I think there's a huge amount of like escapism, of course, in writing. It's like the rooms in your head that no one else has access to. So kind of freedom. Yeah, exactly. And so where was your dad in the mix if it was mostly just mom and sister and you? He was here. He was here in the city, you know, and and we are we are close and he's a hugely verbal, incredibly bright guy who's now devoting most of his time to painting. Interesting. Um, mm-hmm. So both of your parents are visual artists. Mm-hmm. Now. Now. What was he prior? He was a lawyer and a banker. So he traveled a lot and worked hard. And he still has a foot in both of those worlds. Hugely bright, a big reader. And yeah, we're very, you know, I'm close with each person in my family. And then I made my own family, which was, you know, certainly reordered me in many ways. How can it not? Mm-hmm. It's a game. I mean, it's, if, it's, if it doesn't, something's probably wrong. <laughs> yeah. If you're just like, yeah, everything's the same, you know. Yeah. <laughs> have two kids, but whatever. Yeah. I'm unchanged. <laughs> yeah, unchanged. <laughs> I don't know. They seem fine. Um, so let's, I want to talk a little bit more about your creative evolution. Mm. Because this book is so shot through with uh, the theater and theatrical concerns. And I think it really mm. informs the psychodynamics and just the delivery of the novel period so can you just talk about your interest in the theater like were you a performer first or Mm. did did you write plays to begin with and were you taken to the theater a lot as a child like how did you Mm. develop Mm -hmm. a love for it I wrote first though I was I did perform in a couple of those really early plays but understood I was much more like a back room person than a front room person I did see a lot of plays. I saw the collected works of Billy the Kid, which was an adaptation of Michael Andace's novella of the same name when I was 15. And the experience of watching that play completely electrified me. And I remember that night saying, and I was with my dad, he took me. And I remember saying, that's what I want to do. So you know, it was kind of one of those teenage moments where like you're so furious and operating at such a high frequency and so misunderstood, or at least that's the feeling. And then suddenly you like encounter something that just seems to clarify like all your passion, you know? And then I... Wait, can I ask, can I interrupt for a second? When you say that's what I want to do, was it I want to be on stage and act or it was I want to make a, I want to write a a play I want to write. Yeah, I want to write. It was the, like, the physical performances were, like, extravagantly beautiful and powerful. But, like, I remember, for example, there was a monologue that's delivered where Billy's essentially being burned alive by the sun. And he's under, the actor's under this spotlight. And the monologue's probably five minutes long. It's, it's, like... It just operated by its own rules and its own conventions and had such a like intelligence unto itself. And the language was so rich and so sensual. 
And um, so that was that was a huge kind of moment, marker moment for me in my youth in terms of like my the apprenticeship, my wilds. Then I went to McGill. I studied English literature, briefly thought I'd become an academic, then wrote a play. And then I was like, okay, I'm addicted to writing plays. And then I went to theater school where I continued writing. I did do some performing because it was the kind of school where you like you try the other disciplines, which is, I think, a really good practice. Yeah. And then, you know, I I wrote for magazines. I was a sex columnist. I was an astrologer. I was an advice columnist and was writing fiction on the side. Okay. Um, so let me stop you because yeah. there's a lot to mm-hmm. unpack. Mm-hmm. The first thing is writing plays. You read a lot of plays. Mm-hmm. You said about to, like I've never written a play. Like, what's the mm-hmm. what is it like to write a play, and how has that process maybe informed your approach to writing fiction? Because it is a stripped down form. I mean, you're only working in what like like set direction, or what do you call it? Um, mm-hmm. You have the dialogue, and then you have the set direction. Is that right? Is that mm-hmm. what you call it? Like the stage direction. Stage direction. That's what yeah, I mean. yeah, yeah. Exactly. So it's like you're describing the world, and then you have the dialogue. It's actually kind of the perfect reflection of like Siama's desired scenes, you know, because you, you, there's no ligature, like you only show what you most want to show and you only say what you most want to say, or at least that's the goal. So there's a real discipline to theater. And then of course it's live. So it's like such a beautiful, unruly form and that like that just the collaborative aspect too i have to say like all the conversations with set designers and prop managers and just these brilliant artists who had come through and basically build the world that's been in your head for 2 years you know it's a very like moving special form so that was yeah that was my life for a long time and to see actors suddenly breathe life into the mm-hmm. lines that you've laid down on the page and this is you talking again. Uh, you describe yourself as a sonic writer. Well, this is like the ultimate sonic form, right? Like- yeah, no, exactly. And so when I'm writing fiction, I'm glad you raised that because I'll read everything back to myself. And that's when I'll know if a note is off or if a note is strained and I'll kill it. So it's like I have to hear it to know if it's like valid or solid. Okay. So here's a related question. Hmm. In your experiences putting up plays, which you have done multiple times, where you've written a play and then it's become a thing that people have gone and seen, right? Mm-hmm. In the rehearsal process for that play, mm-hmm. you have the drafted play on the page, and then you have the actor's performance of what you have put down. Mm-hmm. I have to believe that there is some tweaking that happens in between drafting and then what actually happens on stage when the audience arrives. Yeah, absolutely. So is the question is, did the process of going through that multiple times hmm. improve your ability to self-edit hmm. and to locate as you're reading your own work aloud when something isn't landing? Do you know what wow. I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. No, I love that question. And I don't think I've thought about it that way. And I think absolutely. Like your life, you know, as a writer, it's an accumulation of all of these dis- different disciplines. Like I was also a cook in bush camps and I like acted in a horror film. Like all of these things kind of come together, I think project to project, they're all cumulative. But certainly that process of being in a rehearsal hall, 
testing a line, knowing when something is either starting at the wrong point or one line too long, shearing it, making it taut, and seeing how like whatever, however beautiful that line might have been, however attached you were to it, like, okay, snipping it from the script and going to your graveyard for lost lines, burying it, saying goodbye to it, and knowing that the play is so much better with its absence. Like that in a way it's infirm, the spirit it's inferred, the spirit of it is like it's there. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I think too, like some of the psychological astuteness and complexity that you're able to draw in characters has to be tied to not only the writing mm. of plays where I mean, there's just none of that's on the page. None of that's on the page in a expository way. Usually, mm, there's mm, bits and pieces, but that. it's all it's all embedded in the dialogue. So that's got to mm. maybe force your hand a little bit in terms of character development and character understanding. And then on top of it, I do think that having to act, like mm. I, what you said earlier about going to a university program in theater that was interdisciplinary and encouraged and maybe even forced you to have to participate in all the different aspects of the process mm -hmm. is very useful acting in a horror film like having to be the character has to be an instructive thing for you as a writer of fiction mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know what i love too being in that horror film i because i had so little experience i can i was basically mentored by a friend of mine who is like a true actress and we built i built this whole story around my character and whenever we would go to shoot a scene and the story was in my mind and I'd confer with the director briefly and I would raise this kind of backstory that I'd constructed for this character, they were like, we don't want to know. Don't tell us. Like it was, again, it's the desired scenes thing. They were like, it doesn't matter. Like you just need to be inside this thing for this other thing to happen next, you know? And it wasn't, it was actually so liberating and incredible to think of it in those terms. It's like just inhabit the thing as like precisely and completely as you can. What has come before and what's about to come doesn't matter. It's just this this moment, you know, and theater, of course, is is very much the same thing. But well, but yeah, I, I mean, like, but not all actors, like some actors want the backstory, I feel like. I've read that uh -huh. anyway. Like some mm -hmm. actors love to get into like the biography of the character and the backstory to try mm -hmm. to like inform their performance. But then there's other actors who are just like, nope. Well, and in a way that was like from the novelist point of view, that was for me. But it doesn't mean I have to put it in the book. I think that's what they were saying. You know, it's again, it's the desired scenes thing. It's like that's your kind of like, your private coded way of getting like internal with this character, but you don't need to show us any of that. We know, we know. Is that approach to writing going to carry over into all future books? Like, is this your MO mm -hmm. or is this just a daughter thing? I feel like I discovered a lot with this novel. Like I feel like it was a real turning point for me as a writer. What did you discover? I mean, we've talked about some of it, but I mean, is there... Mm. Oh, I mean, it's just so different from what I've done before. Like my work before was so much, and again, related to theater, it was like world building and mythologizing people. It was like, I feel almost like post-romance with this novel because it's so, it's so direct and it's so deliberate. And I knew that because it was contending with like such operatic states, like such out of controlled states that I needed to write in this very controlled, almost clinical way. 
And I don't know, this novel gave me, I think, a lot of permission as a writer. It's like I, I just completely stand beside it. I love that idea of mm. depicting out-of-control states through really exacting prose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like that tension works really well. Mm. And if you were to do the opposite, the reader would probably be overwhelmed when yeah, I think about it. I think so. And I think you can risk decorating. Like it just, it can, it can sink itself, you know? I mean, there's a lot of humor in the book too. Like I really, like really love funny and and I think that it actually like just pairs so naturally with grief. So that was another thing that I just, I knew needed to be there to keep the like proportions, to keep the formula right. Yeah, it makes emotional sense. You have to, I mean, mm -hmm. people laughing at funerals, right? It's exactly. like a, it's a natural reflex to try to cope with the darkness. That's it. And in a family that is dysfunctional in the way that this one is, and with these operatic states, you know, kind of colliding uh, mm. all throughout the course of the novel, it makes sense that these people would have some kind of like dark humor, gallows humor, or that there would mm. be these moments of levity. Mm. And I always appreciate that in fiction, whether it's to bring in the darkness when things are too light or bring in the lightness when things are getting pretty dark because it feels truer to life. Life is very rarely all one way. Yeah. You know, and so it's, exactly. I think it's just more accurate. And I cannot, you know, get out of this conversation with having you talk a little bit about some of the things you touched on briefly earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, like you said, you were a cook in like some remote wilderness situation. <laughs> I was a cook in a remote wilderness situation. I just want to flag too that we're both dressed for funerals. Um, <laughs> this is my costume for the podcast. It's black t-shirt. Yeah, it's like always dress, always dress funeral ready. Um, I did cook in tree planting camp. So I tree planted for two years and then I cooked for six years. And so basically that would mean I would get in a truck and drive, what, 10, 12 hours, like north of the city into a bush camp. And I would have a trailer, like a good kitchen trailer and sleep in a tent. Sometimes I had a van and I would cook. I would have an assistant, a co-cook, and uh, we'd feed anywhere from, you know, 60, sometimes 90 people. And then I would cook alone too in the shoulder seasons. Uh, same setup. Get up very early. This was sometimes your day job. Bears. This was my summer job. It was like to pay for school. Tree planters. Pay. Yeah, tree planters. What are they doing? Like trying to just reforest Canada? They are reforesting Canada. That is right. Which is massively problematic um, in terms of our forest fires. <laughs> Uh, really reforesting to cut down those trees and turn them into newspapers or fires. So it is like a deeply problematic activity that we've come to understand in a totally different light. But at the time, I was one of many, many writers who was, you know, putting on their steel toe boots and making like seriously good money in a very short period of time. Interesting. Um, so yeah, it was, I love that job. I still have cooking dreams. Are you a good cook? 
you must have some skills after doing that. Yeah, I have some skills. I have some skills. I mean, it's like a very homemade kind of feel, the cooking. You know, it's like all comfort food. But yeah, I have some skills. I would make bread every day. The, it was like a great kind of like in a way, you know, uh, rehearsal for motherhood. It was like, what can I do to give these people some, you know, comfort at the end of like a day where it's like sideways ice rain and they've been outside for 12 hours and they've encountered black bears and, you know, other, other threats and <laughs> hardships. Did you ever encounter a bear? I did. I did encounter a bear. I did have a, a few very scary bear experiences. Describe. Oh, gosh. One was when I was tree planting. And often we would plant in pairs because then you're not planting off a sapling. You're planting off a human being. So it's much easier to see and to keep your line. And we got to the end of our line and we heard shouts. And it was planters in our crew who were shouting bear bear and we ended up sprinting out of the woods back to the van and getting in the van but our friends this is you have to picture like a very thick forest we can't see each other our friends ended up climbing a tree to save themselves and then our supervisor drove in hearing all of the commotion through a walkie-talkie he came in and I don't, one of those stories where like adrenaline kicks in and you have superhuman strength, he used like a log and scared the bear and scared the bear away. And in the end, our, our four person had a, like a bite on his ankle. The bear had followed him up the tree Oh my God. and bit him. Anyway, this bear was then, you know, shot by the Ministry of Natural Resources and our four-person got a rabies shot. But, you know, that's as close as you want to get. And then I had another experience when I was a cook, and that was really scary. And that was a bear who, in human terms, was like a teenage boy who just started to get closer and closer as the days progressed. It was inside the first week of this contract, and he started to threaten the cook shack where we were. And we don't have, you know, we don't have locks, we don't have a truck, like all we could do was make noise and try to scare it away. Two campers had gone into town with their own vehicle because one of them was sick. So they'd gone to the walk-in and they just happened to be coming back in their car and scared the bear away. Again, what happens is the bears get shot. When they display any kind of aggressive behavior to human beings, they get shot, which is also like extremely heartbreaking. Well, yeah, and black bears don't typically... I mean, the thing about it is that you were the food person. So what are they going to exactly. do? You're cooking, you're cooking delicious bread in the wilderness. <laughs> <laughs> like, exactly. This is where you're like, can we turn that into a fairy tale? Right. You know? Right. So that was, you know, that was a lot of my life was going into these like remote northern territories uh, where you feel like you're truly in the middle of nowhere like you barely have your bearings and you're on these like and you're encountering bears roads. you barely have your bearings <laughs> and, and you're encountering bears here we go with the fairy tale <laughs> okay so there's that very interesting i'm glad that you survived <laughs> and then you said you worked as an astrologer and a sex columnist yeah, I did and we've talked about like... this being like a, you know you being a scorpion novelist <laughs> and sex is one of the thematic concerns of this book mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. something that you write into 
mm-hmm. and write into very well. Mm-hmm. But there's also, as I've continually said throughout this conversation, like a real psychological astuteness to your work. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering about the sexual like theme or the sexual writing or component to these characters in particular and how maybe the work that you did as a sex columnist might have informed your understanding of people's impulses and psychologies around that like did it help you create these characters and write these parts of the book I don't know I don't think so I think you know I loved writing that column I basically put on a persona I wrote it under this this pen name Bebe O'Shea (laughs) (laughs) and I just wrote in this totally bossy tone about how men should do things okay you know so it was kind of like she was a character unto herself. Like, I don't feel like she entered daughter in any way. I think that any like sexual preoccupation or, you know, they're like novels without sex, like disturb me. So I just yeah. had a conversation with Anne Enright and she said basically the same thing. <laughs> Amazing. Like no jokes and no sex. Like what yeah. is happening in people's lives? <laughs> Truly get me out of this book and this life. <laughs> yes. But the people like that are writing to you when you're writing as baby O'Shea, mm-hmm. that must've been somewhat interesting. Like you are getting a, a window into like human beings that you wouldn't ordinarily get probably. Yeah, no, I felt I felt like very lucky in that way. Maybe the way that it relates is I love like kind of a confessional like setup, like a private setup between two people where one person is coming with a confession or a question and the other person, I know this sounds so Catholic, but the other person, not the priest, the advisor is trying to help them see a way through. You know? I think I think that's they probably relate in that way. So much of daughter is like, is that dynamic, right? Of two people talking, one of whom is looking for something. There is like a confessional aspect to it. Totally. Like that first image, like we'll take this full circle, like the Mm -hmm. image that basically launched this novel for you, Mm -hmm. where Paul and Mona are meeting in his favorite restaurant and talking, like these restaurant scenes, which recur throughout the novel between Paul and Mona, very much kind of a confessional. That's it, exactly. That's very fascinating. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought of it that way. When did you think of it that way? Before oh or gosh. after? Truly just now, inside <laughs> your circle. Well drawn. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. And are you, were you raised Catholic? No. Oh, okay. I was. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, that's all a confessional. <laughs> but uh, I think to bring it even more full circle, I want to end mm-hmm. by talking about motherhood. Like we've discussed this idea of motherhood being a kind of liberation for Mona and like the, at least, a, you know, a big part of what ultimately liberates her and gives her her agency. I'm curious to know about your own experience of motherhood in particular as it relates to your creative life. Mm-hmm. I think you said something to the effect of motherhood becoming a new source of creativity for Mona that she hadn't maybe anticipated. Yeah. But yeah. I want to know just like how your experience of it uh, maybe squares with that or doesn't. It definitely squares with that. I mean, I think when our children were younger, it was just logistically so much more difficult, you know? And that's, I wrote that essay for the Paris Review, Mothers as Makers of Death, which explored 
that new feeling, that new insight that I had when I became pregnant and when I became a mother, which was the presence of death. And my last novel, Heartbreaker, really was written from that place. This one is like, Daughter is like a sequel to that essay in some ways, like with the deliberate, direct language, but also the size of the questions that it asks. But it reflects my state too, five years later, where I just feel more evolved in terms of the relationship between art and motherhood. And it is just that. It's like motherhood is a source now of like untapped artistic power. And I still need to figure out time all the time and how to be alone with my thoughts. My psyche is still divided and time is pressurized. All of those things remain true. But it's actually given me, I think it's made me personally a better writer because it's made me so exacting about like where I want to put myself and what I want to pay attention to. You know, I think that that's why I wrote, partly wrote those like the Hemingway-esque sentences, like these blunt, fast sentences, because I'm always short on time. Well, okay. And I get that. Mm -hmm. I think that's like, that, that, that makes perfect sense mm -hmm. in terms of like the relationship between art and life. Mm -hmm. But what I, as a reader, prize concision and velocity so much. I think a lot mm -hmm. of people do, whether they know it or not. It's just a pleasure to read. And it feels mm -hmm. like when a book is written in this mode, or just when the author has done the work, mm. that's what a book should be. Mm. The, the, the reading should be easy. <laughs> you know, that doesn't mean that there's not complexity to it, but I'm just like, it feels like this is the way to do it. Mm. Like, why would you ever not write only the desired scenes? Why would you mm -hmm. ever not compress as much as you can? Like make mm -hmm. your sentences as powerful and as imbued with meaning and as impactful as you possibly can. Isn't that the project? Isn't that the job of the writer? <laughs> mm, I love that. I love that. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you agree? Mm -hmm. or do, is yeah. There... yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I absolutely think, agree. I feel like sometimes people give themselves too much permission or something. And it's, uh, it's like beautiful writing, but... Mm -hmm. It's it's un, it's not vital. I think it's I think it's easy to fall in love with your own voice, you know. And as you write more and more, the love, you know, pales and becomes something else that's much more powerful. You know, I I mean, this is another anecdotal story, but I was with my mother-in-law when she died, and it was a really mystical, very beautiful experience. We were really really close, and I saw in that moment like the concentration of the spirit, that the point of life is the spirit. And after she died, she'd always written, but she did it in a very private, humble way. And I was tasked with looking through her writing and created a, like a couple of different um, like compositions from her work for, her, for the service honoring her life. And she wrote in the most unadorned way. She was like Lydia Davis or something. It was like, she was writing in the service of life, you know, without any ego. It was just her transmitting what she was seeing. And I, I learned so much from that. Yeah. It's like outsider art or something, you know, where people <laughs> aren't trying to be part of the machine. They aren't fame seeking. 
you know, where she wasn't trying to get a gold star for her work in the way that we are, <laughs> you no, know, to, at least so, to some extent. It's so true. She wasn't trying to make it her profession. She wasn't conscious of where she'd be seen within the scale of things, how she'd be described. Like there was no self-consciousness. Well, but it, but it was also vital and deeply personal, I would imagine. Like it, exactly. It wasn't like frivolous. No, exactly. Like she wrote so sparely, like just everything you said about a line being imbued and impactful and like, isn't that the thing that we're going for? That's exactly what she did. Like what I will often find as a reader is that when a book isn't working for me, I often feel like the writer just kind of wanted to publish again or needed to fulfill a book contract or something. Yeah. I'm like, well, I, I don't feel the point. I don't feel like there was a emotional, like human, mm. <laughs> like urgency in the writing of the book. Mm-hmm. And in books mm-hmm. that do work, it seems like that is there. It's, I always call it like there's blood on the page. Yeah. Like the person mm-hmm. really needed to write this book. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I feel like they didn't really need to write it. They just wanted to write it. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I feel like that's kind of your approach is that mm-hmm. you you either can't write or won't write something until you get to that level of desire, like the desired yeah. scenes. And along these lines, I'm wondering if you have another book in the works. Mm. Uh, are you just in between projects and kind of waiting for that to materialize? Yeah, waiting, you know, waiting, reading writing, paying attention, knowing, knowing what will happen for me, which is that exactly. It's like, I'll get to that place where it's like, okay, blood must spill. (laughs) (laughs) Time to call mom and tell her to start making some soup. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But that's the way, I mean, just for people at home who are writerly, who might despair in these kind of like quote unquote fallow periods in between projects, if the criteria that you're trying to meet is it's got to be vital, it's got to be urgent, there has to be blood on the page, this has to be something that like, you're almost like, it's like this, uh, it's a little bit melodramatic, but I think it's a useful comparison. It's like, if you were on your deathbed, what do you have to say? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's that urgent. Mm-hmm. If you don't have something that feels like that, the way to it is through intake. It is through mm-hmm. living your life, absorbing whatever comes your way, but also, I think, actively reading, watching good mm-hmm. films, watching good television, mm-hmm. paying attention to what moves you, paying attention to what recurs in your brain thought-wise. I mean, this is mm-hmm. it, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then eventually you get to a point of overload or a point of confluence where you mm-hmm. sort of realize that there are, what, a handful of things that are really bothering you. <laughs> yeah, I had a teacher who would talk about it as like an infection. It's like the infection would grow and become so intense and almost unbearable that, yeah, the bloodletting the bloodletting had to occur to cure the infection, and the bloodletting is the writing to be very scorpionic. I was going to say. So, and right now we're just in intake mode. The infection is light. There's not, not even no fever yet. No, none. No, no, no. It's good to have a period of health. I think so. I think so. I think that, uh, and it's good to maybe have gone through the process enough times to where you trust it 
and that you're not yes. spooked. You're not spooked. You don't seem spooked yeah. by the fact that you're in this. No. You actually seem quite delighted. <laughs> it's nice to, to not I be am... having a fever. Like the fever can be delicious, but like it's good to not have a fever too. It is good to not have a fever. Like I think that we think there's this hierarchy of emotion and the like ecstatic state is like the ultimate state but actually those regular states have their place they do mm -hmm. well it's a good lesson to know to mm -hmm. trust them and i uh i really love this novel and i am delighted to have had the chance to talk with you about it thank you so much for the time thank you so much what a beautiful conversation thank you all right folks there we go that was my conversation with claudia day her new novel is called daughter available from farrar strauss and Giroux. You can find her online at claudiaday.com. She is on Twitter. She is on Instagram. Again, the book is called Daughter. It is outstanding. Go get your copy right away. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the Other People podcast on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly email newsletter over at Substack. You can join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. If you have a couple of minutes and you want to do me a quick favor, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. Write a little review if that's an option. If you want another People t-shirt, you can get that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. And finally, a quick plug for my latest novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade, paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so if you want to read my book, you can read my book, or I'll read it to you. You have options. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up on Wednesday, I will be in conversation with L. Nash. She has a great new novel out called Deliver Me, available from Unnamed Press. Had a very interesting talk with El Nash. You won't want to miss it, so stay tuned.